G'day, Starlo here. Welcome to the 12th and final episode in this first series of my cutting-edge fishing wisdom podcasts and videos. Historically, the words conservationist, environmentalist and angler might not have sat together particularly well. I know I'm not the only avid fisherman who's muttered, fumed and cursed about the bloody greenies over the years. For the longest time, it seemed that we fishers stood on one side of a very high fence while the environmentalists and conservationists massed noisily on the other side, waving their placards and chanting their slogans, and that our major form of interaction was to occasionally lob rocks over the top at each other. But those times are finally changing, and trust me, they desperately need to. I accept that it's hard to feel sympathetic or have shared objectives with groups you perceive as being opposed to almost everything you personally care about and hold dear. In the past, that description's applied to the attitudes of both camps, the dedicated conservationists and us passionate anglers. However, when you get right down to it, both groups tend to want exactly the same thing, albeit for slightly different reasons. I'm not going to tell you for one moment that there aren't folks out there who call themselves conservationists and who'd also like to see an end to all forms of recreational fishing. They definitely exist. I call them preservationists, not conservationists, and most of them seem to want to lock everything up, throw the key away, and go and live in a damp cave, eating mung beans and crocheting rainbow beanies out of their own body hair. But I suspect that these extreme preservationists are in the minority, just as it's only a minority of so-called anglers who couldn't give a damn about the future of our fisheries and are only interested in killing as many fish as they possibly can. Both of these extreme fringes give their well-meaning brethren a very bad name, and it's high time we fishos called that fact out while also proudly claiming the middle ground where folks with shared objectives can actually work together towards shared goals. The concept of anglers or hunters working together for the conservation of fish and wildlife and the protection or restoration of the natural habitats that sustain those creatures is certainly nothing new. It dates back to at least the time of America's 26th president, Theodore Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a keen sportsman and an early conservationist. He famously said, quote, The nation behaves well if it treats the natural resources as assets which it must turn over to the next generation increased, not impaired in value, end quote. He also believed that, quote, Wild beasts and birds are by right not the property merely of the people today, but the property of the unborn generations, end quote. And Teddy didn't just talk the talk, he also walked the walk, establishing no less than 150 national forests, 51 bird reserves and four game preserves right across the United States that together helped to protect more than 230 million acres of public land from rampant development and clearing. He was decades ahead of his time and he also loved to fish and hunt. Later, in 1937, another small group of American sportsmen, yes, they were almost all men in those days, formed an organisation known as Ducks Unlimited. Its prime motivation was the conservation of the habitats and migration routes that supported wildfowl, including the ducks and geese, 
these hunters love to shoot each open season. Ducks Unlimited provided a model which was taken up in 1959 by Trout Unlimited, and these two bodies have gone on to provide role models for similar organisations around the globe, including our very own Ausfish Unlimited here in Australia in much more recent times. The concept of hunters and fishers working to protect wildlife and habitat so that they can utilise it in a regulated, well-managed way for sport and food might not sit so well with some of the preservationist mob, <laughs> and it certainly gets right up the noses of the animal liberationist lobby. But the pragmatic truth of the matter is that no one on the planet has a greater vested interest in saving something than those who actually wish to utilise that resource. No one. <laughs> it really is as simple as that. So anglers, by definition, make obvious environmentalists. At one level, it's a no-brainer. Yet many of us have been deterred from branding ourselves that way because of our often justified suspicions concerning the motivations of some of those chanting slogans on the other side of that metaphorical fence I talked about earlier. It's easy to become disillusioned and even paranoid about the myriad dark forces that sometimes seem to be lining up against recreational fishers these days. Everywhere we look, one group or another appears to be working to erode either our access to public waterways or our ability to pursue our chosen sport when we reach those waters. Sometimes it feels like we're facing death by a thousand cuts for what I like to call our passionate pastime. And we're left wondering if our kids and their kids will get to enjoy the wonderful things that we've experienced in our lives. But knee-jerk reactions to these perceived threats are not always in our best interests. Let me give you an example. Late in 2020, there was an increasingly heated discussion about the possibility of a total or partial fishing ban on Adelaide's very popular Port River. This drastic measure was being mooted as a result of deaths and injuries apparently inflicted on the waterway's resident dolphin population by boat strikes and interaction with fishing activities. Not surprisingly, South Australian anglers, many of them already feeling battered, bloodied and bruised after the state's recent snapper fishing shutdowns, were totally aghast at the prospect of potentially losing such an important and easily accessible urban fishery. It's human nature to lash out at those trying to take away the things we love. And I read some very nasty, vitriolic comments about the rabid greenies and dolphin huggers from the wreck fishing community in direct response to this unfortunate situation in Adelaide. Personally, I don't see any mileage at all in that sort of counter-punching and name-calling. Such behaviour does us absolutely no favours at all, especially in the eyes of the non-fishing community. Let's face it, most people love dolphins. I love dolphins. <laughs> Lining yourself up as someone who hates dolphins, or at least hates those who defend them, is truly a no-win strategy. It simply reinforces the negative attitudes some folks already have towards us and our sport, and it may even hasten its shutdown. It also severely erodes what's trendily known as social license these days. That's a fancy term for public support and approval. Such a course is frankly suicidal, even if it might make you feel good inside for five minutes after saying or posting it. Don't do it. 
It makes much more sense to demand to be allowed to sit at the table with all the other stakeholders and interested parties involved in order to hopefully state your case and be part of a negotiated solution. A solution which may well end up being a compromise that no one's completely happy with, but which is certainly far better than simply being locked out. It's a fine line, of course, and there's nothing wrong with fighting energetically for your cause. A few years back, mass opposition and public protest by wreck fishers successfully overturned the locking up of significant areas of public water as part of the then-proposed Hawkesbury Bioregion Marine Park Plan. That proposal covered a vast swathe of the densely populated eastern seaboard, from Newcastle to Wollongong, and included many incredibly popular and accessible fishing spots. Like a lot of others, I was horrified at this unscientific ambit claim by a preservationist minority who seemingly had the ear of a few people in the state's government and bureaucracy at the time. Anglers fought this plan tooth and nail, and we won, at least for the time being. It was a significant victory too, and one which the Stop the Lockout movement that formed at the time can be justifiably proud of achieving. Sadly, however, in more recent times, that particular movement seems to have been hijacked to some extent by forces hell-bent on opposing every form of control or moderation on the impacts of recreational angling, from bag and size limits to licence fees and the creation of genuinely science-based sanctuaries. This is a real shame in my opinion, and I know it's completely alienated a lot of thinking fishers, not to mention many in the non-fishing public. That, of course, brings us back to the critical issue of social licence or public approval that I mentioned earlier. We lose that valuable commodity at our peril. It's something we need to constantly bear in mind. We need to be not only conservationists and environmentalists in the truest sense of those terms, we must also be seen to be so. One of the many ways to do that is to get involved in habitat protection and restoration projects and also to take part in various citizen science initiatives. I was honoured to be invited to act as MC at the 2019 National Recreational Fishing Conference in Hobart and to also have the chance of presenting a paper of my own at the event which I entitled Could Citizen Science Save Recreational Fishing? That name might sound a little dramatic at first. You may well think wreck fishing doesn't actually need saving from anything. But I believe we must accept that long-term trends in relation to society's attitudes towards our passionate pastime are not all positive. As already mentioned, fishing's coming under increasing scrutiny, even attack, from various quarters. In future years, we'll increasingly be called on to justify our activities. In my opinion, one of the best arguments for being allowed to continue to fish is the valuable contribution that we can and do make to the science surrounding fish populations and the health of aquatic environments. Our participation in this science can take the form of various monitoring, tagging and sampling programs, and it can also involve keeping logbooks, responding to creel or catch surveys, reporting sightings of unusual or invasive species, and so on. There's a great many citizen science projects out there if you take the time to look for them. Interestingly, citizen science may also become the key argument in us being allowed to continue fishing for sport by choosing to release at least some of the fish that we catch. 
Catch and release is a practice that's coming under great scrutiny in certain parts of the world where it's increasingly being argued by some that if we must fish, then it should only be to kill and eat what we catch, not for sport or recreation. Involvement in citizen science and research provides an extremely valid justification for catch and release fishing. (laughs) Never forget that. I've been a big fan of David Attenborough's amazing wildlife documentaries for most of my life. And yes, he's been making them for at least that long. Now in his 90s, Attenborough remains an energetic and passionate champion of our natural world and its wild inhabitants. One of his docos not so long ago was called A Life on Our Planet, and he fittingly described this epic production as his witness statement cataloguing in detail the changes he'd observed across his nine decades on planet Earth. It's a sobering account, and as you can probably imagine, those observed changes are profound. If you haven't seen Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet, I strongly urge you to track it down on pay TV or wherever and watch it, ideally with your family. I think the aspect that impressed me most about this benchmark documentary and made me suggest that everyone should watch it, is the surprisingly positive final messages that Attenborough offers. Far from being another doom and gloom will all be ruined assessment of the type that's becoming far too common these days, a life on our planet offers some very encouraging and constructive messages. Attenborough clearly believes that it's not too late for us or for the planet, and that we can turn things around by modifying our behaviour. Better yet, some of these essential modifications are already underway. Interestingly, in many cases, these positive changes are being driven from the bottom up by people like you and me, rather than coming down to us from governments and other agencies. Anglers might well cringe at Attenborough's message about the need for a global network of marine reserves, potentially encompassing up to a third of our oceans and inland waters. (laughs) My hackle certainly went up at that. But you know what? He's probably right, and he argues his case persuasively. However, we as fishers need to be a significant part of the decision-making process when it comes to the creation and maintenance of those reserves, not the victims of arbitrary decisions imposed on us by people and agencies who don't know, understand and love the world beneath the waves the same way we do. We need to start being treated as an integral part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. Sadly, that won't happen until we wake up to ourselves and begin to behave, speak and act like true conservationists and environmentalists. And and time for doing that is running out. One way we can all earn our stripes as genuine environmentalists and conservationists is to roll up our sleeves and become directly involved in hands-on habitat restoration projects. Litter cleanups, tree planting, re-snagging, weed removal, fish rescue missions, education programs. There are so many ways in which we can all become personally involved at a local level and do our bit. Many anglers might be surprised to learn just how many keen, dedicated fishers have already become habitat heroes over the past decade or two. Most of these folks fly under the radar. They're not in it for fame, praise or public recognition. They simply wish to do their bit to help the habitats that host our pastime and produce the fish that we love to chase. We owe them so much. 
If you're interested in finding out how you can become a Habitat hero, a good starting point is the not-for-profit organisation called Ausfish Unlimited. I'm proud to be an ambassador for this wonderful group who do extraordinary work right around the country. And if there's not already a local chapter close to you, (laughs) they'll help you form one. For me, the bottom line is this. As anglers, we must, first and foremost, be genuine conservationists and wear that badge with pride. Most of us now understand and accept that our actions have consequences and that we have a vital role to play in the protection, defence and rehabilitation of the habitats and aquatic webs of life that sustain our passionate pursuit. Now we need to bring the rest of the fishing fraternity along with us on that same important journey by gently educating and convincing them. There really is no other path if we hope to continue to be allowed to fish for life. Until next time, this is Starlo wishing you tight lines.